Hi, Alison. Good to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? So uh, I guess uh, I, I, as I describe myself, um, I'm an economist who specializes in retirement economics. Um, but uh, unlike a lot of other retirement ec economists or most economists, that's taken me to some unusual places. Because uh, uh, really, uh, retirement economics is about studying risk. But I've always been a big believer that, uh, you know, you can find interesting stories about risk and learn about risk and I guess some more unusual places. So uh, in addition to working in academia and policy, I've also worked as a journalist, which has given me an outlet to sort of find interesting risk stories. <laughs> got it. So uh, could you please share with our listeners the story behind like how you got into economics? Um. Well, I guess I, I, I got into it super young. Um, I think I was like 15, 16 when I started taking economics classes, and it just really resonated with me. Uh, you know, you, I felt like I was learning all the secrets of how the world works. And I grew up in a community with a lot of poverty, and I never quite understood why. And economics started giving me answers. Um, so that was really compelling. And then, so I started studying economics when I was like 15, 16. And got quite serious about it pretty fast. And then I'd say when I was in my early 20s, I got really interested in the retirement problem. Mm -hmm. I guess it seems strange. I know. Most people think it's strange that uh, I'd be that young. You know, for me, it sort of was this very elegant description of the whole economy, you know, sort of distilled into something so simple that also affected everyone's life. Because you think... Economics at its core is seeking out uh, the optimal allocation of scarce resources. So if you think about your life, your life cycle and that you're going to get paid a certain amount of money throughout your life and you somehow have to consume a certain amount every year, anyway, you have all these uncertainties or uh, you know your income is going to drop when you retire. How, how, how do you manage that and how do you think about that and what's the best way to do that? It became a very interesting question because it sort of encapsulated everything that economics was to me. And I love the problem because it's so simple and elegant, yet at the same time, so difficult. Mm. Got it. And what happened then after you studied economics? Well, I studied, I, I um, took time off after I finished high school, went to Eastern Europe and really got, again, more interested in economics. I think from that experience, Eastern Europe in the mid-90s was interesting. And then I studied economics at University of Edinburgh for three years, where I did my undergrad. And then I went straight into a PhD program at Columbia here in New York. Um, so this is, this is why I started doing retirement stuff. And But then I finished, I was finishing my PhD and it never dawned on me I didn't want to be a professor. I think mm. I, I loved research. I loved seeking out questions. But when I'd go to all these interviews, I was just really didn't want to be there. Why? Um, <laughs> Any particular reasons that, that uh, yeah, come to mind? I think it's just a gut thing. You know, it's like, mm. I think you just know if you're on the, like, it could be, you could be on a bad date or in a bad interview. <laughs> you know something's not for you. And, you know, it's nothing against that person or that job. I mean, uh, it's a great lifestyle that a lot of people love. And, you know, it has a lot of benefits to it. It's just, it just wasn't for me. I mean, maybe mm. just, I, I'm, I'm someone who needs to take more risk. Maybe I wanted something a little bit edgier. I don't know. <laughs> so this was about 2006. 
And I just didn't know what to do because I just sort of had this I will be an economist thing I'd been doing since I was like 15. And but what that meant and what other than beyond grad school, I hadn't honestly given a lot of thought to, which sounds amazing. Um, But it was 2006. And I knew I really liked teaching economics. I like talking about economics. I like learning economics. So I was reading The Economist one day, the magazine, and I was like, well, this is doing all of those things. And it looks like more fun than research. Uh, so I emailed the New York bureau chief and said, I think I should write for you. Anyway, I had no writing experience and was not even a very good writer at that point. And, you know, normally, what year was it like back then? 2006. Okay. So got the it. economist actually gets those emails fairly frequently and they ignore all of them usually. <laughs> like, but being 2006 was lucky in some ways because it was very early days of web journalism. And, you know, where mainstream publications were starting to have websites with news. And at that point, they weren't they didn't really take them very seriously. So they were sort of like, well, if you want to write for our website for free, we'll let you. (laughs) And like I said, I had an economics PhD. Like this was kind of like an insane thing to do. Like I was really qualified for like real jobs that would pay me well. But I I decided to do this. And it was great because they taught me how to write. um, And I learned a lot of new things. But I was only there actually a couple months before I met uh, the famous financial economist, Robert Merton of uh, mm-hmm. Black Scholes fame. And he was also very interested in retirement and really liked the research I'd been doing in grad school. So he suggested we work together. Um, turning How did research- you met him? Sorry to um, interrupt. But- I had a friend who showed him my dissertation. Mm. See, I was always very passionate about research. So I had a good dissertation, which was useful. Um, so he really liked my work. He's like, let's turn our research into actual financial products that can help people. And that sounded fun. And I got to work with him. And it really changed my intellectual orientation because before that, I'd st- I was more of a macro public finance economist, like more policy oriented. But then he taught me finance, which is really like how to think about the whole economy from a risk perspective. Mm. And it sounds crazy. And I think a lot of people don't realize this about economics is that Finance is really siloed from the rest of economics. So we don't really think about, we think about risk in the rest of economics, but not really in a coherent, logical way. I mean, so what finance, do you mean by that? Yeah. Could you unpack that for us? Um, well, it's like, you know, risk is kind of an afterthought mm-hmm. or, but in finance, risk is the center. It is, this is how I think, this is the whole problem. It is the, the, one of the main components of price. It is something people are either looking to avoid or seeking out. It's everything. As opposed to in the rest of economics, it's sort of the sideshow if it's included at all. If you think about it's just, in the rest of economics, it's just supply and demands. Like people mm-hmm. want, you know, but really risk is always a component of price. If you think about it, when you say buy an airline ticket, you know, like basic economy, like the worst, like lowest form of economy. It's cheaper, but you also, if the plane is full and they have to kick people off, you're on the top of the list. Mm. So effectively, when you buy in a a basic economy ticket, it's like you're selling an option on your seat. And the option is in the money if the plane is full. And you are the most likely to get kicked off. So therefore, that option is the most valuable. And that's why your ticket price is so much lower than it would be in business class. There's all these services in business class, but you think risk is like a huge part of that price. Um, So that would be how a financial economist would approach 
an airline ticket price as opposed to regular economists would just think about supply and demand. Mm. So, so is that anyway, I already had a PhD at this point. My time with Merton, which was like seven years, really changed my intellectual orientation to be much more risk oriented. Mm. And what, what did they taught you? Yeah. Just how to see risk everywhere, how to see risk and prices everywhere, how to see all decisions you make as a risk management decision. Hmm. And it was handy, again, because I said we're retirement people. And retirement, as I said, this very nice little elegant problem that everything kind of boils down to. And integrating risk into that particular economic problem is probably easier than a lot of other economic problems. So that made it easier. Because you think hmm. you're trying to move resources across your lifetime. But you don't know how long you're going to live. You don't hmm. know what's going to happen to your salary. You don't know what's going to happen to the stock market. So it's a huge risk problem. And having the benefit of his knowledge and insights really helped me understand it much better. And then it also really helped me understand the economy better. Mm. So I worked with him for like seven years and then, um, I'd also kept up writing for the economist and then later moved to courts. So I developed, um, write a better writing skill and, over the years. Yeah. And it developed a real interest in storytelling. Um, because as economists, we don't really talk to people very much. Mm. So this whole, like, you go out and you ask people their opinions about things and you learn from what they have to say it was also compelling and a new skill for me. So at a certain point, I was like, I should bring this all together. I feel like in retirement, particularly, people don't understand these basic risk principles that are now critical because we've put this big risk problem on everyone, but we've given them no risk training. And I felt like everything I learned from Bob, everyone should know. Uh, I feel, I just started to see it as critical life skills. So I decided to write a book where I'd combine everything, where I could go out and find really interesting stories that people would resonate with people and would have meaning, but I could use those stories to teach people more about risk science. Mm. So, uh, Alison, before we talk about your new book, um, could you please share with our listeners, like what have been in, in your career, like what have been uh, the worst moments and the best moments, so to speak? Oh, there's been a lot of bad moments and there's been a lot of good ones. Yeah, feel free to share a couple of stories with us. So I would say my first year of grad school, my last year of grad school were definitely up there. Uh, when I started grad school, I didn't really have much of a math background, which sounds insane considering it was a quantitative yeah. PhD <laughs> and like you're expected to be able to do all this hard math and I didn't know how to do any of it. So I'd have to stay up nights reading math textbooks to just do my homework. And it, you know, I'd never worked so hard and it was probably still to this day, my greatest intellectual achievement, learning that much <laughs> math that fast. But you know, you, it's, it just goes to show you this in life, things don't always feel fair because you work. I was working so hard. I was learning so much. I, I, my brain was never worked more efficiently yet. I could still fail all my exams because they're still scaled. And the guy next to you was a Korean math champion and you learned what an <laughs> integral was last night. So no matter how well you learned what an integral was, you're not going to be as good as he is. <laughs> yeah, probably. So that was frustrating. But, you know, I think like anything, it also shows, you know, if you just really want something bad enough and don't give up, sometimes it works. Mm. So I didn't give up. But I think it also pushed me to do an incredibly quantitative dissertation, even more than the Korean guy did in the end, because I was so determined to prove myself to my entire economics department that I could do hard math because I was the weak math student the whole first year. <laughs> um, and then I ended up doing a way more quantitative dissertation than I needed to do. And um, 
then I ended up finishing and realizing, oh, I've worked this hard. Something amazing should happen. And then nothing happens. I ended up having to take a job as an unpaid web writer. So <laughs> I'd say that that was tough. Um, how, how, what did your family say to you? Like after you took the first job and um, wrote online articles and so on and so forth? I think they were happy. Friends. Um, I think they were just happy I was doing something. I think they'd seen mm. me suffer through this PhD for so many years. <laughs> and they're just like, just, yeah, do what makes you happy at this stage. Mm. Um, I can't remember what we were thinking. I think I was just like, I think this looks like fun and I haven't had fun in six years. So <laughs> I think we all kind of knew it would work out somehow. Yeah, I got it. Um, sometimes you have to just sort of, You know, being a retirement economist doesn't sound like a risky way to live your to have your career, but at the time, I think it just felt like time to take a risk. And you know, I was pretty young, and I didn't really have a lot of obligations, so you know, why not? Okay, so there was no backlash, and people said, "Yo, you you need to take a, a serious real job or something like that." So, well, my department was pretty mad. Um, <laughs> okay, because you know they they have a lot of investment in what happens to their grad students, mm. and I remember I had a very tense defense where they were like, "I had I don't think I even had the Economist at that point," and they're just like, "What are you doing? This is just terrible. This makes us all look bad." I think my my advisor said I was mediocre and I'd like never amount to anything. It was just bad. Oh um, man. <laughs> um, but at that point, you're sort of I I was sort of in this nihilist stage where I was just like, "Let's just see how it goes." And you know, nothing can be as bad as the last six years, and it really wasn't. I think partially I had this fear of leaving grad school for a long time because I, did you go to grad school? No. See. I feel like a PhD program is a very difficult thing. You know, it's this. Moment. Well, I went to grad school, but I dropped out of college. So. Okay. <laughs> so college is pretty fun, usually for yeah. most people. Um, grad, a PhD program is not fun at all. You work quite hard. You're always being told you're not good enough. You're, it's part of the process. But most people don't know what that's like. So I was living in New York and struggling mm. in grad school, and people kept telling me, shh. Well, if you can't handle that, wait till you get a job. And I was like, oh my God, like what's a job like? It must be horrible. Do people yell at you all day and tell you you're not good enough and you don't belong there? I'm like, that sounds awful. How much worse can it be? So I was convinced that leaving grad school would be the, this horrible like hellscape. Mm. Um, then I actually got a job and I'm like, I don't know what everyone, everyone was wrong or everyone thought that because they'd been to college, they knew what a PhD program was like when really they just had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And, and what were your, your best moments uh, in your career? Um, I'd say definitely writing the book. I love mm. everything about the process. I loved writing it. I loved researching cool. it. I even loved editing it. I loved promoting it. Uh, that sort of was like the coming together of everything. I'd say the other great moments were the seven years when I worked with Merton, just when I would get to spend hours every week talking to him. And what a gift that was to really be around that caliber of thinker and <laughs> to have him raise your game that much. Cool. So uh, I think everybody who is listening to this would love to hear like... Um, Could you please tell us a bit about your book? So uh, what is it about? Who is it for? And um, yeah. So the book is about risk, I guess. So what I do is I said I had this idea that people needed to understand these concepts of financial theory. 
mm. which is just risk science. But I also love storytelling. So what I did is I traveled the U.S. and found really interesting risk takers and showed how they think about risk and manage risk in their lives really conforms to what we know about risk from financial theory, or sort of the science of risk. So the first chapter opens in a brothel where I spent some time researching pricing and discovered that, you know, again, like the airline ticket, you pay more for a less risky sex transaction. Like there's a premium on safety, like there is. Mm. Uh, so that's the title. So an economist walks into a brothel. I got to, you got to hear, you know, and it's not just like being people over the head with the data. It's also telling stories about, you know, I always would try to find a person who sort of exemplified these principles of risk. And in the book I write about Shelby Starr, who's a sort of a middle-aged uh, sex worker who at that point I think was earning like $600,000 a year um, just because of, you know, this ability to provide what feels like a safe, comforting encounter. Because mm. it's not just, you know, the sex, it's really people want to feel this sense of intimacy in a safe environment, free from any risk of rejection. Or um, I think certainly with a community of more loneliness, this is very compelling and people pay a big premium for that. Mm. Uh, I, I, there's only one chapter about brothels. Then I move on to all sorts of other industries from big wave surfers to poker players to horse breeders, just everything. <laughs> yeah, whatever, funny. I'll... Whatever interested me, I, I went there. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about uh, a couple of weeks ago, I've talked to the highest earning legal sex worker in America and um, her oh, name Alice? is Alice. Yeah, Alice Little, exactly. And um, she basically said the same thing for most uh, clients. It's mostly about the connection and not about the sex at all. And yeah, I, I thought, well, I, I, I haven't thought about that. So, uh, yeah, well, she read the book. So I like it, but um, <laughs> Alice is great. I, I got to know her quite well, obviously, because she's ah, at, at, at the brothel I was at. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I wasn't there working, obviously, but like the one she worked yeah. at, I was doing research. Yeah, bunny, the bunny ranch, a moonlight bunny ranch, or what was the name? Yeah. Yeah, she's a she's a phenomenal businesswoman. Yeah. Um, if you see her in action, it, it's something to behold. I mean, I've, I haven't seen her in action. Like, I haven't seen her. Yeah, yeah, obviously. But I, I've seen her, like, sort of talk to clients. And it is, as I said, the way she markets herself is, I mean, she's a genius. <laughs> so uh, share with us uh, the second chapter. So what was it about, like surfing? Or? Uh, no, the next chapter was about sort of what I think of as the most important part of risk management, mm -hmm. which is uh, defining your goal. Because if you know what you're taking a risk for, you're a lot more likely to have a successful risk taking. And it mm -hmm. sounds so simple, but it actually can be quite hard because you have to know what you want. I said, like my experience with grad school, I didn't really know what I wanted. So it was not a risk that went well. Mm -hmm. But if I came in with a clear objective, it would have been a lot easier. So I talked to the CEO of, um, well, now she's CEO of Focus Groups, but she used to run uh, Cinnabon. You have Cinnabon, right? The, which was like how she was able to just sort of had this very untraditional background. She start, She rose up through being like a waitress at Hooters, you know, the place with the tight shirts and the little shorts, and sort of rose through those ranks to be at 30 running these like huge companies. And it was Crazy. always because she was able to take risks, but always was very clear about what it was she wanted. 
And the example she told me was about how, you know, they have these cinnamon buns and they're 800 calories. And the whole world at a certain point was like, we should not be eating 800 calories of butter and sugar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So they tried to lower the calories to increase business. But then they realized you know, so they started making these like artificial things that, you know, to cut calories and they just tasted bad. Mm. And we're still not going to eat a 600 calorie cinnamon bun that tastes bad. If the goal is to increase sales, see, they said they get, they got, you get fixated on the wrong goal. They got fixated on a lower calorie bun, not a bun that would actually sell. Mm. She was like, have this sort of obvious solution. Like, let's just make the existing one smaller. That before we get lower calories, it still tastes good and people will still eat it. So, uh, yeah, so that was the, this is the first couple chapters all about knowing how to define your goal. And, and, and what was the conclusion of that? Yeah. Um, and just sort of, I said, how to think about it. And it, it boils down to this very sort of common concept in the financial theory, which is the concept of the risk-free rate. Hmm. The risk-free rate helps you think these through. It's like, what will get you to your goal with no risk? Usually you're not going to do that because low risk is expensive. Like think about a low risk interest rate, probably negative doesn't pay you anything, but you know what's going to happen. And that also helps you think through what your goal is, because a risk-free is not the same for everyone. Hmm. You know, uh, the risk-free asset for a short-term versus long-term investment is different. And the same way, you know, going to college for some people is low risk, for other people it is risky. You know, it really depends on what your goals are. Um, so yeah, that would be the next. So the next section was really thinking about how to define what your goal is and how to mm. think about risk-free terms. And and what would you tell to everybody who is listening to this right now? Like, what would you tell them um, on defining your your goals? Well, I said you have to think through: is this something I want? You should only like mm. risk taking is important. Like, we tend to think of risks as a bad thing, but risks is a good thing. It's the only thing that gets you what you want in life. But you got to make sure. As as Kat said, like people take risk for risk's sake. You can't just be like, I'm bored in my relationship. I'm bored in my job. Screw it all. I'm just going to like blow it up. Like that's not going to go well. We all know people who've done that. (laughs) Never goes well for them. You got to think, well, what is making me unhappy in my job? What is it I want from my career? Hmm. Is it because I want to be doing this? Is it because I just don't like my boss? You know, you have to think, or if you're unhappy in your relationship, it's like, what am I looking for in my relationship? So you have hmm. to think through what it is you want. And then from there, you can decide, is this a risk worth taking? And if so, how much risk do I need to take? And that comes down again to this concept of, you know, if your goal is a pleasant evening for the night, um, you know, is staying home and watching Netflix, you know, that's one way to reach the goal. It's risk-free. <laughs> party is going to be riskier you don't know how that's going to happen you could get hit by a car you can meet the most amazing person you've ever met like there's a lot more risk involved that you see there's more upside mm. but it's sort of like but what's your goal in an evening is it to meet new people or is it just to have fun in which case maybe watching netflix is sufficient <laughs> i'm so glad that you mentioned you shouldn't take risk for risk's sake because i was just thinking about that most people have this common misconception that entrepreneurship is all about risk taking but um the most successful people i know they're always thinking about how to cap their risk so to speak and um how to to limit the downside instead of like just taking risk for risk's sake so yeah, so I think risk management is 
really misunderstood. I mean, that's the heart of the book is talking about different ways you can manage risk, which is capping the downside. Uh, there's two ways you can do that. You can either give up upside in exchange for getting rid of downsides. So that's what we call a hedge. Mm-hmm. Or you can insure, you know, you can pay someone a fixed amount and they take away your downside. And I think this is one problem. I said, one of the reasons we don't explain risk well to people, we tend to think of risk as this binary thing. You're a risk taker or you're not. <laughs> There's this huge gray area of what we call risk management, which is calibrating your risk and taking the just the amount that you're comfortable with or the amount that you need to get to your goal. Hmm. And how does one figure that out? Well, it's a hard thing. It depends on you. So an example of hedging is I, I also spent with big wave surfers in the North Shore of Hawaii. That's a third and, chapter, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think it's actually like 11. Oh, okay. Um, okay, okay, got it. Um, so that, so you think about when we see these guys on TV, they're always like, if a wave is there, I have to surf it. And you just think <laughs> they're like, just surf 80 foot waves, but they, they're really actually quite methodical about it. So an example of a hedge for surfing is, you know, big waves travel in sets. So you'll have five big waves right after the other. And, you know, that first wave might be the ultimate big wave. It might be perfect. It might be beautiful. It's everything you need. But it's also the first wave in the set. So that means if you wipe out, you'll have these four waves that follow it that will increase the odds that you drown. So surfers actually would take the fourth or fifth wave. It might not be as good. It might not be as big. It might not be as perfect, but it's a lot safer. So that's like a hedge. You're giving up some upside in exchange for reducing downside risk. Uh, another example is it is insurance. So insurance for them would be like a jet ski. So there's always a jet ski in the water waiting for them in case they wipe out. So that is is it insurance, which is if you wipe out, there's something there waiting for you. And what would you tell um, everybody who is listening to this who wants to build a company or um, who wants to scale their company on hedging their bets or thinking about insurance? Well, I think you want to think of, I mean, there's different creative ways you can do it. There's the typical mm-hmm. ways, which is you want to think about how you're going to finance your company. Are you going to do it through debt or equity? You know, equity in some ways is less risky because you don't have to pay back your debt, but you also give up a lot of upside. Mm. Um, so I think I said the traditional way we always think about it in finances through corporate finances, thinking through, do you want to do debt? Do you want to do equity? Um Through insurance as well, it could even be creative, which is if this doesn't work out, I will get this payment or I will do this or I will have the backup plan. I mean, that could be an example of insurance. Got it. So uh, take us to the third and and fourth chapter. So uh, what are they about? So uh, that's where I spent uh, some time with the the paparazzi in the streets of New York. Um, (laughs) Because it turns out they, they have a very complicated risk problem. You think. If you're a celebrity photographer, if you get the right shot, it's really about being at the right place in the right time. And it's so random, they have incredibly variable income. So this is what we call idiosyncratic risk, which is the risk that um, in the stock market that an individual stock will rise or fall. Mm-hmm. And you can get rid of idiosyncratic risk by diversification. Like if you own a mutual fund, an individual stock going up and down, you don't even notice. So the paparazzi pretty much do the same thing which is they uh, form alliances of other paparazzo and they share tips and they share um, royalties depending on the arrangement. And they even give the paparazzi, the alliances like little zippy names. Like I uh, followed around a guy. 
Uh, there's also a company called the Bowery Boys. So, but the problem is, is because you get more money for an exclusive shop, their their risk alliances are always breaking down. They're always cheating on mm. the alliance, which forces them to deal with the idiosyncratic risk because the alliances are very unstable. The other thing, risk they have is what we call systematic risk, which is the risk. The whole and, and sorry to interrupt. Is there a solution there for that particular yeah. problem? There's not. I mean, mm. if, they, if these were formal alliances that were legally enforceable, it would be. But this is the problem, as I said, with them being casual, I guess. I mean, there is some reputation cost, I guess, because they all know each other. Yeah. But they're always angry at each other. It's a very tense job. I think that's why they always seem so grumpy. Um, <laughs> they always have these bad histories. Oh, and the other one is the one of the other reasons they're angry is they have a lot of systematic risk, which is like the risk of the whole market will collapse. And that certainly happened with them since the glory days of the Britney Spears head shaving umbrella incident. They used to back then get $15,000 for a picture of a celebrity getting a cup of coffee. Now they'll mainly get five just because the market for celebrity pictures has just imploded as things went online. Hmm. So that's a hard, much harder risk to manage that they also have to deal with. Hmm. And what what is the the fifth and sixth chapter about? Um, that would be about our behavioral biases. So um, why we um, sort of we hate losing more than we love winning. So that mm. take more risks when we're down, and fewer risks when we're up. When often it's better if we just were consistent no matter what. So for that, I spoke to a professional poker player about how he manages that risk. And interestingly, the way he manages it is to make sure he doesn't have too much money on the line. That keeps him sane. So he does a lot of hedging and insurance to make sure that he hasn't put too much of his own money at stake. And that keeps him rational. The guy I spoke to is named Phil Helmuth, who's known for being this very erratic guy who screams and shouts at everyone. But when he plays, he's actually quite rational. He um, only plays 12% of his hands, which is a very low rate in poker. It's called patience. Mm -hmm. And he's the most unpatient person you've ever met when you speak to him, but he's managed to channel the, or like channel this sort of sort of rational patient self when he plays poker, partially by using all these risk strategies. Hmm. And then I spoke to in the next. Do you get in the book? Uh, do you get into the book uh, in the book uh, into those uh, risk management uh, strategies that poker player uses? I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he. Um, He cut, they cut a lot of side deals, the mm. top poker players, they, where they agree to split the pot um, in advance. And then uh, another one is that he goes in stakes, sort of like, it's like, like private equity, in that someone gives it, pays for some of his, uh, his budget for uh, buying into the poker game, and he, they get a piece of his winnings. Got it. And then the next chapter is about how we perceive risk. Like, when we see probabilities and someone tells us how likely something is to happen, we tend to not really internalize it. Hmm. So, or, you know, or if we come up with those estimates ourselves, we infer them from past data and we tend to be very bad at that. So for that chapter, I talked to a criminal, a famous criminal in America, uh, who is known for pulling off this major uh, um, security scam for an electronics company his family managed. <laughs> Uh, they had a business where they uh, would evade taxes and they were making good money in the 70s, like $7 million. It was a lot of money back then. But then they decided they could make more if they took more risks. They took this illegal business public, like they sold it on the stock market. So they made $60 million. You made a lot more money. There was more upside. But obviously they got caught because you can't take an illegal company public and think that's going to end well. 
So you got into this story and um, yeah, what was the takeaway there? I think it's about how they thought they would get away with it because they could do secure uh, tax fraud. And it's like we often assume serial correlation where there isn't any. Like if you're playing poker mm. and you're having you have one good hand, that doesn't mean your next hand's going to be good. Mm. Just because you can do tax evasion doesn't mean you can do securities fraud. Mm. And I, found and I think a lot of people think like that, don't they? Yeah, I, I talked to a lot of criminals who did a lot of different kinds of crime and a lot of very different backgrounds, but they all say the same thing. They all say they didn't think they'd get caught or they thought maybe the beginning, but then Mm. it was like they got away with it and they got away with it again. And that made them think, well, I'll get away with it every time. Mm. But really, it's not like if you keep getting away with crime, that doesn't increase the odds you're going to keep getting away with it. But people tend to think that. Mm-hmm. And I think people also think about when they're on a lucky strike, they will like always be lucky in the future. So, uh, yeah, yeah also there's bias. No, there's no relationship there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So uh, could you unpack the, the, the last uh, few chapters for our, for our listeners? So from there, I get into risk management, like really mm-hmm. more and more detail. I talk about diversification, which is sort of brought up with the paparazzi, which is it's efficient. You never want to take more risk than you need to, right? So risk is the cost for getting more, but there's no reason to pay more for something than you need to. So in finance, we call this efficient, like an efficient portfolio. If you have two portfolios, they have the same return, but one's riskier than the other, you wouldn't take the riskier one because just why? It's like paying too much for something. So usually if you diversify, you get efficiency, which is, you know, you always want to have some diversity in your life with a career, um, anything with your skill sets, and that's considered efficient. And then I get into um, the hedging and the insurance, which you do once you have that efficient portfolio, which is, you know, getting rid of capping the downside and all the different ways you can do it, which is either hedging or insurance. Got it. Yep. And then um, from there, I get into, you know, how you can use these same tools to take more risk mm-hmm. and, you know, why that's dangerous and when that's good. And then Unpack the last- that for us, please. <laughs> so, first, remember when I was talking about the surfers and how they have these jet skis in the water mm-hmm. in case they wipe out? Well, they also it's like it's like a financial derivative. It's technically insurance that keeps you from certain uh, from lowering your losses. But you could also use it as leverage to take even bigger risks. And that increases your the chance you could lose a lot, too. It's the same thing with jet skis. They're there as insurance in case you wipe out, but you can also use them to push you on a bigger wave that you couldn't mm. physically paddle on. So it actually made, in some ways, surfing more dangerous because now people are surfing way bigger waves that you, know, you, couldn't, you, that you couldn't get on without a jet ski. But the problem is, is you take these big risks and sometimes it poses risks to others. So how do you use this technology responsibly? So you know, so you can get the best of all worlds. And, you know, when technology sort of empowers you to take bigger risks, how to do so. And so the surfers are really having a big debate. Honestly, the same debate we're having in financial markets of who bears responsibility. Can we count on individuals to make these choices or do we have to rely more on a regulatory body or some external mm, a third party yeah yeah and then the very last chapter is about the risks we can't anticipate you know i i'm talking mm. about risk management i'm talking about all the things you can imagine happening and how probable they are but obviously some things happen you don't anticipate like just mm. we call off distribution risks like you just never thought that would happen so you never planned for what, it what will be an example 
Well, so for that chapter, I spent time with a military general, H.R. Mm-hmm. Uh, McMaster, and who was uh, Donald Trump's uh, national security advisor, but before that was known as a risk scholar. And he writes a lot of uh, military history about times that the military had plans for a battle and then something completely different happens. And what's the mm. best way to manage that? And really, that comes down to flexibility. You want to plan. You want to have thought through everything you can, but you don't want to be so arrogant that your plan is everything. You want to have enough flexibility you can abandon your plan if need be. And this is a hard balance that the military struggles with. I mean, if you look, when you take that view and you start rereading military history, you realize it's always this tension of it's cheaper and better to plan wars in advance. But obviously, you can't plan a war in advance. (laughs) But But like every... It feels like every empire rises and falls on this question of, all right, well, we can we can sort of we have the technology now. It's a reoccurring theme that we've taken the risk out of warfare. We can anticipate everything that's going to happen. We're going to plan war at the highest levels. No one's going to die. It's going to be great. And then you get in there and it just (laughs) as you think it is. So you want to have that flexibility. You want to train your soldiers to make decisions on the fly if they need to. Mm. And it's the same thing in finance. This is why debt can be so difficult like you can this is always the problem in financial crises is people are like i've planned for everything and if you take on if you borrow money and then invest it that's leverage right Mm. so you get a much higher return but it's also a lot riskier and one of the reasons it's riskier is you give up that ability to have any flexibility if things don't go as you expect because you still have to make your debt payments anyway the market crashed in a way you never thought it would (laughs) so um we we have covered like so so many things in this episode. So, what would you tell to everybody who is listening right now? Like, what are the big key takeaways from your book and those things that people should really pay attention to? And obviously, um, we haven't covered everything in your book right now, but um, yeah. So, <laughs> I'd say the main one is that risk taking is positive, and you should take more mm. risks, but don't just take risks mindlessly. Mm. Take risk, but explore, you know, take risks for the right reasons. And when you take risks, think about how you want to manage them. Got it. So, uh, by the way, um, w- w- do you know, like, Nassim Taleb? And, and if you do, uh, what's your opinion on him? I don't know him personally. Ah, okay. But you read uh, his books? Or, like, I because not. he? Ah, okay. Okay. I, I, I mean, I've, I've heard of them, obviously. I'm familiar. Yeah. I mean, I think he says some of the same stuff, just in a longer way, which is, you know, sometimes you, risks happen you don't anticipate. Yeah. I think he, he he's more um, bearish on risk management tools, but I don't think, and I mean, I sort of get into this in my last chapter. It's like, just because risk management tools are imperfect doesn't mean you don't use them. Mm. Like It's better than nothing. You just have to be mindful of what their limitations are. Got it. So, um, Alison, besides all those things that we have covered today, um, what are like the other big, big, big epiphanies that you've had over the years on risk management, uh, microeconomics, economics, and um, yeah, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, well, any just, big epiphanies that we haven't covered today? <laughs> I, I, would, I don't know. I mean, the big epiphany was that risk is such a fundamental part of economics. Hmm. You know, it was always kind of there looking in the background, but the idea that this is so central to value is so central to decision making, which, again, isn't even sort of widely embraced in most of the economics profession, for me, was the big intellectual epiphany I had. 
Hmm. So uh, I I I I always like to ask every guest of mine, like besides everything that you're currently doing, what are like other topics that fascinate you the most, like nowadays? So uh, yeah, feel free to speak to that. Well, I've just been reading um, Bob Schiller's book, Narrative Economics, mm. which is super interesting. And I sort of visited and similar to what I was exploring before, which is how do stories impact us and how do they impact the economy and how do they help us connect and understand things better? I think storytelling is such a powerful medium that hasn't really been explored more, certainly in economics. Mm. So um, at the end, I always ask every guest of mine five very quick and short questions. But um, before I ask those, like, what would you tell to everybody who is listening to this episode right now? Like anything we haven't covered or your best advice on risk management and thinking about risk, like anything else. So always think through what's the worst that can happen and if you're really comfortable with that i think people often are more than they realize it's sometimes good to be uncomfortable with, get more comfortable with what you think scares you <laughs> so uh could you please tell everybody where can they connect with you on the social webs uh buy your book and so on and so forth well the, the book is is it on amazon it's everywhere and um my twitter handles at allison schrager and I, i think i'm on all the things <laughs> Pretty much all under my name. I'm very easy to find. Got it. So uh, the first out of the five question is, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Ah, that's that's a really good question. Um, three books that have had a big influence on my life. Yep. Um, huh. <laughs> Well, actually, the first one was actually a three-volume set of economic history. I read as uh, Flauta Milkowski, which I read as an undergrad, which for me was learning how markets form. And it's a collection of essays, uh, mainly written by Joel Mulker, who's been, again, very influential to me of how I think about how economies form and evolve, certainly when I think about economic history. Um, I would say Freedom to Choose by Milton Friedman. Mm. Um As it is just a manifesto of how to think about markets and how to think about liberty. And then um, uh, the general theory by Keynes, just because, you know, I think how, how, how to think about, um, you know, economic policy and, you know, how it can impact people. Got it. So uh, the second question is, um, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Oh, three movies I've enjoyed the most. Um, I love I love The Godfather, that whole trilogy. Mm, I keep talking about trilogy. Good choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, that influenced me the most. You Th know, that you enjoyed the most. Oh, that I enjoyed the most. Well, I guess that's a different question. Um, well, I, I, The Godfather would still be on there. Um, <laughs> oh, I haven't. I don't go to movies as much as I used to anymore. Um, Uh, I remember, you know, it sounds strange. I haven't seen it in so long, but Sling Blade. Mm. Got it. A third And one that comes to mind? third one that comes to mind. <sighs> or maybe a, a TV series or Netflix show or something like that. Um, hmm. You know, it's like you, <laughs> it's a big volume of content. I don't even remember yeah. what I 
last week. Although I do, I love Succession. Mm, okay. So uh, the third question is,、um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Sort of ride sharing. Ah,、uh, sorry. So you were cut off here. So. Oh, sorry. So ride sharing, like Uber、mm, or Lyft. Yep, got、mm-hmm. it. So、uh, the fourth question is:、um, What are the most important、uh, realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their career, family, relationships, time, travel. So、uh, speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. Um. That you know, the people who come through are not the people you think are going to come through,、hmm. but you can't blame them for not. Got it. So、uh, the last question for the day is, what would you tell your twenty-year-old self? Um, what's wrong with everyone? Like you keep so- thinking every interaction where that doesn't go your way is somehow your fault. Mm. But it's really people have their own motivations and they're inside their own head. <laughs> so,、uh, Alison, thank you so so much for being on the show.、Uh, it was fun talking to you today, and yeah, thank you、Thanks、so much. Thanks for having much. me. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.